Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. This is Mark Manson, author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. If you want to build better relationships with others, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I am super stoked to have on Mark Manson. Mark is a two-time number one New York Times bestselling author whose books have sold over 13 million copies now worldwide. It's been translated into more than 60 languages and hit bestseller lists in 16 different countries. According to Amazon Charts, his book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, was the most read nonfiction book in all of 2017. And he's now been published and featured in over 50 of the biggest newspapers, magazines, and television shows on the planet, including NBC, CNN, Fox News, Time Magazine, Larry King, New York Times, New York Post, USA Today, BuzzFeed. If you've heard of it, he's been on it essentially at this point. So I'm super excited to bring Mark Manson on the show. Mark, what's up, man? Thanks so much for joining me. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So I want to build a little bit of context for those listening for maybe like the three people who haven't heard of you or your books or seen the orange cover in an airport at some point in their lives. And I want to take rewind the clock a little bit and go back in time here. Let's talk early life, 12, 13 years old, 
you know, where'd you grow up? What were your parents doing at the time? And how did that kind of influence the direction? And, and let me kind of preface this, by the way, for, for those of you listening to the show, you know that we typically don't use a lot of cuss words or anything like that. But I have to caveat that because literally both of Mark's books have the word fuck in them. So if you're not somebody that enjoys uh, hearing those types of things, then maybe move on to the next episode. But uh, if you can, if you can uh, make it through, please stick around because it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, to have this conversation. So Mark, question for you, 12, 13 year old, set the scene. Tell us, uh, tell us what life was about for you back then. 12, 13, I was a little misfit. It's bittersweet always talking about my hometown because I grew up, where I grew up is completely different now than it was back then. So I grew up in Austin, Texas. Mm. Now everybody and their dog wants to live in Austin, Texas these days. And it's a very cool, cool city, but it's completely different than it was back in the eighties and nineties. And I used to live in Round Rock, which is used to be a exurb, like way outside the city. Now it's just like another part of the city because it's gotten so big. But it was kind of a conservative, a conservative suburban area in Texas. You know, it's everybody now thinks of Austin as kind of the San Francisco of the South. And that is true if you're like within maybe, say, five miles of downtown, but you get 10, 15 miles away from downtown and, and you're in Texas. So I grew up in a conservative area, went to church two, three times a week. You know, parents were not old fashioned, but they're actually pretty like pretty modern. But um, but I mean, it's like they were both old school Texans. And so it was like, this is the way they grew up. So this is the way I was going to grow up. Traditional. Yeah. Yeah. Just, um, you know, this is what you did every week. And um, and I did not like it. I did not fit in. I always joke that the the two the two big, the two most important things in Texas are, are Jesus and football. And I decided when I was around 11 that I didn't believe in the Jesus thing. And I was absolutely terrible at football. So I, I just kind of felt, found myself as an outcast. Yeah. 11 years old to be growing up. I grew up in, in a really, really religious type of a home. Just a quick context. I graduated kindergarten, eighth grade, high school and college on the same campus, which is also wow. the campus that I went to church on. And so I definitely understand the growing up in a bubble atmosphere. And I find it fascinating that you decided for yourself at 11 that you didn't, that you weren't on board with the God thing, which, you know, regardless of your, your family situation in gen, in general, like where you were in that geography, that whole culture believes that it wasn't just like, oh, when I'm with, when I'm with my family, they say these things. It's like, everybody around me believes this. Why, why do you think that you were able to make that adult of a decision when you were 11? Well, looking back, like I, I never liked, I, I always hated church. And I, even when I was a little kid, five, six years old, and, and I never understood why. And I think it wasn't until I was maybe 11 or 12 years old that I started to kind of put things together. I mean, it just, it never made sense to me. Like it never, you know, it was like, I would go to school and learn about math and science and history. And it was, you know, it was like, X caused Y and Y caused Z. And then you go to church and it's, and it's just like random stuff is supposed to make sense. You know, like I, I, it never fit together in my mind. But I think the, the other thing was just, I, and this is going to sound very cynical and mean, and I, I don't mean this in a cynical or mean way, but I started to find that a lot of the people, including my parents, but you know, a lot of people in that community were very two-faced, I guess, is, is the word. You know, it's, they would say things 
publicly at church, but then you'd kind of go off to dinner with them and you'd hear them or you'd watch what they did. And it was the complete opposite of the things they were saying. You know, I, it's like, I would see my parents talk shit at the dinner table about, you know, the people they couldn't stand at church. And then we'd go to church the next day and they'd be like, Oh my God, it's so good to see you and hugging each other and everything. And I'm like, this is such bullshit. Like (laughs) I'm laughing, I'm laughing and nodding my head vigorously in agreement because I literally was having this conversation. So my assistant that works for me, we grew up in a very, very similar environment. We went to the same schools as we were like in third grade. And, uh, and we were talking about this exact thing, how I was like, probably one of my biggest triggers now as an adult is blatant hypocrisy. And it stems directly from growing up the way that I grew up. And and I found the exact same thing to be true is people portraying themselves to be a certain type of individual or person, and then not being that person behind closed doors. And like that now frustrates me to no end and I can't stand it. And uh, I'm sure it has to do a lot with the fact that I saw it live itself out in a multitude of ways when I was younger. Um, but anyway, sorry to interrupt. I, I felt like I had to explain why I was nodding my head so much uh, during that answer. No, it makes sense. And it's it's funny too that, I mean, you've kind of built a business around relationships. You know, I, I when I, not to jump ahead, but when I started my business, it was around dating relationship advice. Mm. And one thing I kind of discovered early on in my career is that I just had this obsession for authentic relationships. Like it just, dishonesty or not portraying your, your true feelings. Like it just drives me crazy. It's, it's just a personal tick of mine. And I think a lot of it comes from growing up in that sort of environment. And it's not, and I'm not saying this to, to trash, you know, religious people or certain Christians or whatever, you know, I think lots of human group, most human groups do stuff like this. I think when I look back now, I'm actually much more sympathetic to religion now as an adult than I was, you know, as a a teenager or a kid. I I just think in communities like that, there's such a premium put on kind of solidarity and conformity that it's, you know, people just kind of fall in line and say the right things. And it's just understood that that's what you're supposed to do in those sorts of environments. I didn't understand that then. I just, I was like, the adults are lying to each other. What do I do about this? Like, you know, like yeah. that's all I could understand. Yeah. But like now that I'm older, I, I kind of get it. it it's um, some some cultures really demand that that level of, I guess, solidarity from each other. Right. So you grew up in Austin, kind of felt like an outcast, never fit in, make these kind of adult level decisions at that young of an age and, and which probably further isolated you from probably the rest of your peers in that sense. Uh, what, uh, I know that you ended up moving out to Boston and that's where you, where, where you went to college. Why, why did you choose there? Any specific reason? Uh, to get out of Texas. I remember I went, I went on a East coast trip with my dad to when I was, when I was like 16 or something. And we went to Boston, New York and DC. And I was just from the first moment we landed, I was like, this is where I mean, like I need to be on the East coast. It's funny growing up in Texas, I think because of that that almost like compulsive need for authenticity or, or honesty, I was seen as a dick in Texas. You know, it was like, I was the guy who said the thing that yeah, right. nobody was, you know, it's like everybody's doors, right. Everybody's thinking it, but you're not supposed to say it. Like I was the guy who said it, you know, and then you go to Boston and everybody's like that, you know? So yeah, going like Boston, moving to Boston is one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. And it, and it, and to me, it's, um, it was because of the culture. It, it's 
the first time in my life that I ever actually felt like I fit in. And I think part of it was the authenticity thing. And then I think, I think part of it too was, you know, I was always a very kind of intellectual and philosophical kid, which again, where I grew up, that wasn't really respected. You right. know, you were actually made fun of, you sure, know, if yeah. you used it mumbo jumbo. Yeah. Yeah. If you used a big word, like people made fun of you or thought you were being, thought you were better than them or something like that, you know, and, and it's in Boston, it, people respected that people were impressed by it. So for me, it was just a, a breath of fresh air. Yeah. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So talk to me then about the next phase of your life, right? Because the subtle art didn't come until 2016. And sure. you were in college 2007. Is is that right? Uh, you... I, gr- I graduated 07. So 2000. Okay. Yeah. So there's a nine year period there where sure. you know, I, know you, I know you had a self-published book. And like you said, I started writing some blogs on dating and different things like that. When you graduate college, you're probably not thinking uh, like, oh, I'm going to be a blogger now. Right. So what, <laughs> what, yeah, I'm sure there was some sort of a discovery phase or an obstacle or, or wall that you came up against where you were like, oh, I don't actually want to be doing this thing that I studied, I want to be doing this other thing. Let me just go. And then you went on a, a trip and traveled around for a while and, and, and uh, traveled around the world and then wrote blogs and then came back and wrote this book and had a meteoric rise after that, which I want to get to. But what happened in that in that in-between time? And how did you kind of discover what the next step was going to be in your life? So I, I in school, I actually studied, well, I, I, I intended after school to, to go into finance. And honestly, looking back, I don't think I really thought but it threw very much. I, I was playing a lot of poker back then and I, I was kind of good at it. And so I figured like finance was like the logical yeah. uh, a- analog to that. The problem was, was like, I graduated into like the biggest financial crash of in 90 years. So yeah. <laughs> jobs weren't really available. 
And uh, so I was, I was, I was living on a friend's couch and just like trying to make ends meet. And one of the things that I, I was doing, like I had learned at some point along the way, I'd learned how to like make basic web pages. And so I started doing a little bit of free freelance web design and web work just to like pay the bills, you know, pay my friend back for letting me sleep and crash on his place. And uh, it was around that time I read Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week, and it for people who aren't familiar with that book, it it was it was a huge huge kind of cultural moment. I think it came out in '08, where basically the, what he argued was like, you know, you can if you can build systems online that essentially you know you can automate an entire business online so that you can make money while you sleep. And they don't even have to be big businesses. You know, you could just build something that makes you a thousand bucks a month or something on the side. And I read this book and I'm like, oh my God, this is mind blowing. I have to do this. And so I spent the next two and a half years working like 16 hours a day, trying to build something that would let me work four hours a week. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so through the process I'm, I'm building, I, you know, I'm building, affiliate marketing websites and AdSense websites and SEO networks and just doing all this crap and like none of it's working. And back then the uh, kind of the big strategy, if you wanted to get traffic was to start a blog. Blogs were kind of like podcasts before podcasts. Like it's, sure. it, it was like the big growing space. And um, so I, I started blogging for a few of my websites and one of them was like a dating relationship website. So it was like, I would promote match.com and I'd get five bucks if somebody signed up through my link or whatever. And so I'm, I'm writing these blogs for this, this dating relationship relationship site. And, uh, and it, it started to take off. And I noticed too, that the more I kind of shared about my own, cause I was a single 25 year old guy at the time, the more I shared about my experiences dating and, yeah. in my relationships and things like that, the more people came and the more they read, the more they signed up and wanted to read more. And that was, that was the beginning essentially of my blogging career. It was a complete accident. Yeah. So how did that end up going? You obviously did pretty well enough to let you kind of live an autonomous lifestyle and create a life that you wanted. Right. So uh, how, how did that end up going and what happened to spark the idea of writing more like life philosophy style books, like what you're doing now. Yeah. So it took a year or two till I was making kind of like a modest full-time living, you know, maybe a couple thousand bucks a month or something like that. And my, I had always dreamed of, of traveling the world. And so it's, you've got a business online, you can work from anywhere, you know, 25, making a couple grand. It's like, all right, let's go to Asia. Let's go to South America. Let's go to Europe start experiencing all those things. And so I, I just kind of built up the business slowly over a number of years. And then it was around 2012, I want to say, yeah. maybe 2013. I started realizing something, which was, you know, well, let me back up a second. So when the blog started to get popular, one of the things I did was I realized I'm like, I should actually know what I'm talking. Like if, if people are actually going to read this thing, I should probably know what I'm going to, I'm talking about. And so I, I started, I started doing a lot of research into like psychology and yeah. attachment theory and learning all about the field and, and, and making sure I'm actually giving decent advice to people. And um, one of the things I discovered as a couple of years went by is that pretty much anybody who has major relationship issues in their life really what they have is an issue with themselves you know it's it always starts with yourself so it's like if your if your relationships keep falling apart 
it's not because you're sending the wrong texts or you're inviting people to the wrong restaurant. It's because like you're, you're, you're an asshole or you have low self-esteem or you're insanely insecure about something. You know, they, it's, there's some internal individual thing going on. And so I realized after a while that like, there's kind of almost no point in just talking about the relationship stuff if you're not going to talk about the individual stuff first. And so as I kind of dive more into those topics, kind of, I guess, traditional like self-help talk topics, the site grew even more. And, and then it just reached a point where I'm like, you know what, like, this is just, this is, I'm going to rebrand myself as just kind of like a generic self-help author or yeah. life advice giver. And when I did that, things just took off like crazy. Talk to me really quickly about your relationship with the rest of the self-help industry. Because I feel <laughs> I feel like I get the feeling, Mark, that you identify as self-help, but not really. So can can you give us just like a quick explanation of what you feel like that industry is and how you differ? Yeah. So I, I often tell people that, you know, my work is self-help for people who hate self-help. It's kind of like a, an anti self help in a, in a lot of ways, because I'm I'm very outspoken and critical of kind of the traditional self help tropes. You know, I I think positive thinking is kind of bullshit. I think the law of attraction is definitely bullshit. Um, I think a lot of the kind of the woo woo energy stuff that most people talk about, you know, it's just it, it's it's very masturbatory. It's weird in that I'm still seen as a self help guy. Well, let me put it this way. I think a lot of my audience, the reason they're drawn to my work is because is because they're like me. You know, it's like they want to improve their lives. They want to, you know, be happier and have better relationships and, and feel better about themselves. But they don't buy into kind of all the cheesy stuff. But they don't want to um, like bathe in crystals every morning or something. Exactly, exactly. Right. But at the same time, the people who do bathe in crystals every morning, for some reason, think I'm one of them. And so you end up with this very awkward situation sometimes where I get invited to things and people are very disappointed uh, <laughs> or like horrified by the, by the things that come out of my mouth. So I actually, there's a funny story I'll tell you. I got invited to a conference in Europe back in 2015. And I didn't, back then I didn't do a whole lot of live speaking yet. And so I was just, the fact that I was invited to a conference and I was going to get flown over and paid some money was like huge, you know, it was thrilling for me. So I accepted, I didn't really look too far into like who these people were. So I show up and it's, and it's one of these, you know, woo woo spirit crystals type things. And I, I like go in there the first morning and the first speaker gets up on stage and he talks about, starts talking about like, you know, visual energetics. And he like makes us do this exercise where we have to like stare into the eyes of the person sitting directly next to us for like three minutes and share everything that we're feeling. And I'm just like, Oh God, this is not gonna, this is not gonna end well. And, you know, sure enough, I got up on stage the next day and did my thing. And I think pretty much like half of the room hated my guts. Yeah. I like, I actually had people come up to me like very angry afterwards telling me I was wrong. Why was I here? I'm like, I, I really have no idea. So I don't have much of a relationship with the self-help industry. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> Oh, that's funny. It's funny to me because I feel like in that self-help industry, there's a lot of the same coming, circling back to the beginning of the conversation. There's a lot of the same um, hypocritical type people in there as well. 
there's a lot of like the fake it till you make it crowd um, that's that's in that industry of people pretending to live this type of a life and you should pay me for all of the things to help you live a life like I live. But it was really totally a facade and they didn't have any of the things that they said that they were doing. And um, so I, fi I figured you probably had a little bit of opposition to uh, identifying in those circles as well. The whole industry is, there's an epidemic of narcissism in the industry. And I think it's because, you know, narcissists generally feel very good about themselves. That's why they're narcissists. And so I think a lot of these people, they start developing, like what they see as self-improvement is actually just developing narcissistic tendencies, and which makes them feel very good all the time. But part of that tendency is like, oh my God, I need to share this with others. People should pay me for this. And it, it just, it kind of creates this like pyramid scheme of narcissism. And I just, I don't, I have no interest in participating. Yeah. A lot of it's the religion of self, right? It's yeah, like it's the same tenets. Uh, and I like in um, your second book and every, everything is fucked. You go, go, go in that chapter about how people create religions all the time. And uh, was one of the most fascinating things that, that I've read. It's all the things that I've been thinking for the past few years as I've been like navigating adulthood, leaving the way that I grew up. And you just articulated extremely well. And I wish we had more time to go into that, but I wanna move on into the, in the, in the story here and talk a little bit more about, about how the, the initial book, The Subtle Art came, uh, came into existence. And then sure. I just wanna hear what that journey was like, man, because very few people have just meteoric rises with a singular output like one piece of content that you put out that just hit a like the perfect person that you were trying to reach and spread like wildfire and now has been on the the top chart the uh, new york times bestseller list for like 200 weeks in a row or something like that and sold over you know 10 million copies or something now and it's just like that 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 kind of a that kind of a story is crazy so i'd, I'd love to hear you just kind of like you know, it, you know, 30,000 foot view, give us a, give us an idea of where the idea came from. And then at what point you realized that you had something. Yeah. And so if you back up to like 2014, 2013, 2014, my blog starts really taking off. And, and one of the things that was really taking off was kind of actually just what we were, we were just talking about is I started writing now that I, I had stepped out from the relationship umbrella, I felt more free to write about these other topics. And one of them was pointing out kind of the narcissistic tendencies of typical self-help or self-improvement. And so I'd write posts called, you know, you are not special, or, you know, it's why you're wrong about everything or, or things like that, or in defense of being average, stuff like that. And they would just take off and they'd be, they'd get, they'd go viral and they'd get shared everywhere. And, and I discovered that there was a very wide audience of people kind of with my background and my age and my generation who, who had a similar feeling of like everything I grew up being told was, was good is kind of bullshit and, or didn't work or it didn't really turn out the way I, I expected it to. And so there's kind of like a, uh, an abiding cynicism that I was tapping into. And I was experiencing a lot of this in my own life as well. You know, it's, it's, I built an, I built an online business. I'd been traveling all around the world. I had been, you know, doing like living kind of the Instagram life, you know, going to all the parties and events and doing selfies on the beach and all this stuff and having all these crazy experiences. But it was very, uh, it was very unfulfilling. And it all felt after a few years, it all felt kind of meaningless and pointless. And so I had a little bit of, I guess, like, uh, 
mini midlife crisis in, in my late 20s, kind of realizing like, wow, everything I've been working towards like my entire 20s is actually like pretty superficial and, and self-absorbed. And, uh, you know, what do I actually care about? Like if I died tomorrow, would I be remembered for anything? Or what would I want to be remembered for? I started asking myself a lot of these like very difficult questions. And I guess the book Subtle Art was like very much an answer to those questions for myself. And I think that process, that process of like, what are my values? What is actually worth caring about? You know, I know just making a lot of money or buying a big fancy house, like these are not goals that are, are worth giving my, you know, that's what our parents spent their lives trying to get. And we saw how that turned out. So it's like, what are we going to pursue instead? You know, I think a lot of people of my generation, like we're going through these same questions and issues at the same time. And so I, I think the book just hit a nerve. It was, it was kind of the right questions and the right, the right title for the right, for the right demographic at the right time. Yeah. Um, and it was very fortunate in that. Yeah. So is, was there a spike, like a big spike that you remember happening that, or, or was it just kind of steady growth the whole time as soon as the book launched or, you know, so it was funny when it came out, there was a spike when it came out. So it debuted on the New York times list. I think like number six. And, uh, that was at the time, like that was the whole goal. It's like, all right, just get on the times list. And then, you know, for the rest of my life, I can be a New York times bestseller. I never really expected much more than that. And it stayed on the times list for a few weeks. And then it kind of, it dropped off and kind of trickled, you know, sales were decent, but not crazy. And then it really started to come back like two or three months later. And it was interesting. It was the audiobook that took off first. The audio, the audiobook, for whatever reason, Amazon's algorithm on Audible just like started recommending it to everybody. Yeah. And and then once it took off, the the hardcover started taking off. But I'll say this: like people ask me this a lot. You know, it's what what does it feel like? You know, you asked it earlier. Like, what what does that meteoric rise feel like? What what is it like being caught up in that? And I'll say that it's very strange as an author, because I think, you know, if you're like a musician who just hits it big, you're playing in arenas to like 30,000 screaming people singing your songs with you. You know, uh, if you're a movie star that just hits it big, like you're getting stopped on the street every single day by fans. If you're an author that hits it big, nothing changes in your life. Like, <laughs> like absolutely nothing. Like nobody knows who, like what you look like, who you are. You know, it's like the only thing that changes is like a nice fat royalty check shows up every six months, uh, yeah. which is great. But like your day-to-day -day life like really doesn't shift. And then I think too, you know, for authors, it does happen so gradually that it doesn't really, there's not really any single like, oh shit moment. You know, it's like from end of 2016 through 2018, book sales increased probably like three or 4% a month, wow. which when you compound that over like 25 months or whatever, you know, you end up getting just this massive surge of sales, but it, it's just, it never, because it takes two years that like that whole upward trajectory, it takes two years. There's never like a single moment of like, Oh my God, I made it. It's just this weird thing that's always going on in the background of your life. Yeah, sure. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate taking a second to explain that. Um, we're coming up on time here, man. And usually this is the part of the conversation where I talk a little bit more about relationships and networking, but I, I, I got to apologize to my audience because I got to be selfish here and uh, spend the last couple minutes talking about something that I've uh, wanted to talk with you about for, for since I read both your, both your books. 
and it's going to be pretty deep here for the last 10 minutes or so, um, because I want to ask you this question. Why are we here, Mark? What's, what's the purpose? <laughs> what, what's the purpose? What's the meaning of life, man? Uh, that, that, that's essentially what you're writing about. And I find your perspective on it to, to, be, to be pretty fascinating. And so I kind of just want to have this conversation with you. I mean, this, this is where I just say 42 and hang up, right? <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, I, I, so this actually segues in nicely with talking about the, the meteoric success of, of subtle art because something interesting happened after the success of subtle art, which was, it was something I completely did not expect. I being like a big best-selling author, like that had been a dream of mine, pretty much my entire adult life. And once the blog started to do well, and I was making a living off of it, it kind of became like my life goal of like, you know, one day I want to be a best-selling author. I want to be on the New York Times list, you know, want to like go do a book signing somewhere, have a bunch of people show up. And I kind of had this like laundry list of life goals, you know, sub-life goals. My, You know, it's like one day I want to sell a million copies and I want to be on TV and I want to like do this. And it, it was always, you know, one of those things in the back of my head of like, okay, over the next 20 to 30 years, I will like slowly check off each of these off my like life dream list. And when subtle art took off like that, I knocked out all of those in like three months. And so I found myself, you know, in my head, I I've got this like list of goals that I'm going to be working my entire adult life towards. And they were like, I knocked them all out in three months. And so I was actually like completely lost afterwards. I actually became depressed for about six months Mm. simply because I had no idea what to do next. It's like, how do you ever top this? Like yeah. whatever, what, like everything I've dreamt about for the last 10 or 12 years just happened. And I'm still the smelly farting idiot getting up, you know, struggling to get out of bed every morning. You know, it's like, <laughs> Oh crap. Like what do I do now? And so a lot of what informed the second book was, was kind of this obsession about like, what is meaningful? Like what is doing something meaningful and how do you, how do you know if it's meaningful? I definitely am an existentialist in that I don't think there's any inherent meaning to life. I think it's something that we create and I think it's incumbent on us. Like we all have a responsibility to create it. And I think meaning can be created in in multiple ways, but ultimately anything that is meaningful, what it comes down to is some sort of service of others. And whether that's through simply loving somebody, helping somebody, creating something that enriches the lives of somebody, life of somebody, anything that is that humans tend to experience as meaningful and important in the world, we experience it as meaningful and important because it has some sort of service to other people. And so it's one of those things where like you spend like the first 30 years of your life thinking like you're a rebel and a badass. And then you like mature enough to realize that all the cheesy cliches are true. Like mm. the whole point of this is to simply be good to others, to love others. And to hopefully along the way, be loved yourself. And, um, it, that's something that, you know, 25 year old Mark would have like rolled his eyes and been like lame, but you know, it's 35 year old Mark is, is like, Okay. Yeah. This is why all these movies are made about this. I get it. <laughs> well, I, man, I, I would love, I'd love to have a part two of this conversation at some point in the future and just talk only about that one thing. Uh, Cause that's what really fascinates me at this point. But I do want to ask you this last question before, before we, uh, before we part ways here, man, 
This is Build Your Network. Uh, we've had over 500 episodes now and brought on a lot of great thought leaders and uh, entrepreneurs and people all over the spectrum. And this one question I've asked to every single one of them. And so I'm curious to hear what your answer would be, especially in the light of your previous answer. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important in life in general? And why do you believe that? Who you know or what you know? Oof. Oof. Oh my God, that's a tough one. I think who you know, it's, uh, so the cheap, my, my cheeky answer is it, it's who you know, because no matter how much of an idiot you are, <laughs> if you know the right people, you'll be fine. <laughs> it, like people cover for all your, your mistakes. But I, again, I think, I do think it comes back to that meaning thing. You know, it's, it's what you know will get you far materially in the world. Mm -hmm. It will get you a nice comfy place to stay and, and, you know, uh, some money in your bank account, but who, you know, will also get you those things, but it'll also get you something that those things can't give you, which is a sense of meaning and purpose. Yeah. Love that answer, man. I couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more with you on that for sure. It's that's why I like the who, because it's a source of the what, right? Like I, yeah. I way more from getting around people who are way smarter than I am than I do just by reading a book or by watching a course or looking at a YouTube video or something. Like if I can get, spend some time with somebody, you know, then it, it always rubs off on me in a, in a really positive way and increases the what in, in an exponential yeah. rather than in an incremental way. And, uh, and then when you combine the fact that that's where you can drive a lot of purpose in life, uh, I think the who just kind of stands out. Yeah. Do you ever get anybody who says the what? Yeah, actually, the the uh, the reason I started asking the question was I thought it was going to be like a laydown answer, like everybody was going to say who you know, and then we just chat about why that's the case, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. The question, I, I'd started getting a, a good amount of people that were that said what you know, and then a lot of people will like make you know, oh, it's what you know with who you know, it's who you know about what you know, and like the, uh, yeah, yeah, different answers for it. Uh, so it, it's been an interesting question to get three hundred, four hundred plus answers for at this point. Yeah. I I imagine that there are certain contexts in life that, you know, it's, if you're like running a nuclear power plant, I think what you know is much more important. <laughs> yeah, there's there's got to be some industries where it might be a little bit more important on the planet. Yeah. If you're, if you're flying a plane, I think what you know is a little more important, but yeah, it's, it's, that is, it's super interesting to think about. <laughs> Well, cool, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I know we got to get going here. So uh, before before we take off, what's the best place online where our listeners can go to connect with you the most? Uh, markmanson.net. I've got a weekly newsletter that I send out every Monday morning. It's called Mindfuck Monday. I send out three ideas each week to uh, make people help people be less awful humans. So check that out. And then the books are literally anywhere you can buy a book. So so markmanson.net, head over there, check out some of the things that Mark has going on. I subscribe to maybe two or three newsletters and Mark's is one of them. So if you're listening to this, I, I place a lot of value in the stuff that, that Mark puts out there and I like, highly recommend going and checking out some of the, especially his newsletter um, and then the uh, little tidbits and stuff that he posts over on Instagram too, I find extremely helpful. So um, make sure to go follow Mark. If you have not read his books, they are literally two of the books that I have on like my top 10 all-time reading list. Please go check them out, download them audio uh, or, or physical copy, whatever you like to do. 
they're there. And I promise you that they will positively affect your life. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show today, brother. This is a fantastic time uh, chatting with you here the last, uh, the last few minutes. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapelcom slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.